0: Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host Jeff Wag, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. We're here for episode 69, in which we will discuss how to build out your van when you don't have any place to build it. We're also going to talk about 12 volt outlets and why I hate them. A tale from the road involving somebody who took my advice—an always precarious proposition. And we're going to talk about a place to find springs, the hot and cold kind, not the springy kind. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining me once again on this delightful, well, what day of the week is this? Hmm, I know what day of the week it is. Actually, it's Tuesday, which is very late for me recording this. I usually record on Monday, edit on Tuesday, publish on Wednesday, but because I was deep in southern Illinois this weekend at a place called Fort Massick, I am behind in my schedule. So happy Tuesday to all of you who are listening to this at the earliest Wednesday. This bit of timey-wiminess here. As some of you know who have been following the podcast, I will be buying a new van at some point, and because I have moved deeper into the city of Chicago, I no longer have a garage, I no longer have a place to build out my van, and the condo that I live in has covenants against any type of automotive work being done on vehicles in the garage or in the parking lot. Which, yeah, you can kind of fudge a little bit, but I don't want to be that problem person, so I'm going to try to follow the rules. So what to do? Well, it turns out there are many things you can do, and some of these tips are important even if you've already built out your van. Because if you're using your van and traveling, the chances of you having to do something to your van, whether it be a repair or a modification, out there on the road is pretty good. So listen to this and see if you pick up some things that might be useful. First off, you can actually just build your van from inside the van, even while you're living in it. It does require a bit of extra work and planning, and hopefully you've got a bigger van than I do. But yes, it can be done. And this is a place where minimalism can really help you out. What I recommend is that you pick a brand of tools, battery-operated tools, that all use the same battery. These are common at any of the big box stores, Home Depot, Lowe's, Menards, whatever. You will find that there is like the Ryobi set of 14-volt tools or the DeWalt set of 18-volt tools or whatever. They all use the same batteries. Basically, you get the drill, let's say, and then you can buy the jigsaw or a flashlight or a fan or a sander or whatever to add on to that, and they all use the same batteries. And the advantage of this is you only have a few batteries to deal with because you're not going to be using all these tools at the same time. So for me, I find the two tools I need the most during a bill are a drill, an electric drill that I use for a whole bunch of different things, and a jigsaw. And mine are both battery powered and both use the same battery. I use the Ryobi 12 volt system, which I think is called Ryobi 1, but that's kind of old now and I can't recommend it because I don't think they even sell it anymore. But I can tell you that the idea has worked well. I have two chargers and three batteries. And then I have a drill, a jigsaw, one of those oscillating tools that kind of sticks a vibrating blade in places you can't reach. I have a sander, and I have an impact drill that I use mostly to hold a drill bit. So basically I'll have the drill bit in one drill and the screwdriver part in another drill, and I just kind of tag off. I also recently bought another 12-volt drill that matches this system, used off eBay for 30 bucks because I really like this drill and mine's starting to smoke and smell bad, so I think it's about to die and you can't buy them new anymore. Anyway, figure out what kind of tools you're going to need for your build and try to find an all-in-one battery solution for that. I think that works better than trying to rely on an inverter. Now, charging your batteries, of course, you've still got that problem, but you can do that whenever you want. You could conceivably charge the batteries at night, maybe take them into work and leave them overnight, or leave them at a friend's house, or whatever your situation might be. Maybe you have a place where you park, where you have power at night, I don't know. But charging them separately gives you more flexibility than just having tools that you can just plug in. Now, you won't have as much power with these. Some jobs, such as cutting the hole in your roof for the max air fan or whatever you're going to put in, or using a hole saw to drill out the drain hole in your sink, those require an awful lot of power. And those are things that I did with 110 volt tools. And it might take a little bit of patience to do them with batteries. But where there's a will, there's a way. And heck, if you don't have access to this stuff, you're going to find a way to do it. Remember that the White House was built without any power tools, so there's a way to do this stuff. Okay, so, but that's like the basics, right? So there's the tools. Where are you going to do this? Well, one great place to do it is at Home Depot or Lowe's or Menards or whichever big box store you have. Yes, there are often rules about doing stuff to your vehicle in the parking lots of these places, but they aren't really followed. Here's a scheme that I think I'm going to do when it's my time to do this. I'm going to get up in the morning, drive my van to, say, Home Depot. I'm going to go into Home Depot and buy whatever parts I need for whatever project I'm working on that day. Now, I've trained myself to only buy things for the thing I'm working on that day. It was so tempting to say, oh, I'm going to need this later. I'm going to need that and just buy all this stuff. In the case where you're building out of your van, you don't want to store all that stuff. You want a, what is referred to in the industry as a just-in-time delivery where you want that stuff in your van only when you're going to use it. So maybe you need a 2x4 that day. You go buy the 2x4 that day. And because you're going to be in Home Depot's parking lot working on your van, if you're missing something, you just go right back in. And I do not think you're going to have a problem with the staff at Home Depot or wherever you are. If they see you coming in and out of the store, that's good. They like that. That's not a bad thing. Parking overnight there could be a problem, but that's okay because you're going to set yourself up so that you can work at this place during the day and then go somewhere else to park at night, whether it be Walmart, Cracker Barrel, some suburban street, wherever that is. That would be the scheme. And then what I am planning on doing is Home Depot one day, Menards another day, Lowe's another day, maybe Harbor Freight another day. I'm just going to keep kind of moving around so I don't create a persistent nuisance for anybody. Another thing where you can kind of anger people is if you use their dumpsters. So you have to be very careful with how you're going to deal with your trash. If you roll into Home Depot and then try to to stuff a whole bunch of stuff in their dumpster, then they can get upset because they pay to haul that stuff away. So make sure you have a plan for how to get rid of debris. And I don't have any great suggestions on that because it is difficult For the public to get rid of large amounts of waste. Sure, you can throw away a supermarket shopping bag full of waste just about anywhere, but once you get up to like one of those big green trash bags full of waste, it's not so easy. And I know you're going to be ethical and you're going to solve that problem. Now, what if you need tools that you're only going to use once? Do not think it would be ethical to go into Home Depot, buy a tool, use it, and bring it back. I think that's a good way to anger them, and I don't think it's fair. That isn't how it's supposed to work. You're abusing the system at that point. But in many large cities, there are tool banks or tool lending libraries that you can join and they will lend you tools. So let's say it's time to cut that big hole in your roof. You can go borrow a nice jigsaw and cut that hole and then bring the jigsaw back, either for free or no money at all. Some of these are nonprofits and they just accept donations. Others require that you give a bit of money to kind of join a membership, whatever. But these places are great because they've got high quality tools in a variety of sizes and you don't have to store them. You can use them just when you need them and then bring them back. You know, I can think of a number of things in my van that I used exactly once. Like the hole saw for the sink. I used that once. In fact, I destroyed it. So that was the end of that. The hole in the roof, the big jigsaw. I really only needed that once. And so on and so on. Now, here's a great idea that I saw online from a gentleman by the name of Jose Ramon Lucereta. He kind of solved this problem brilliantly. He got a job at Lowe's. Now, think about this for a second. He now works at Lowe's. That means he gets a 10% discount on everything he buys. That means he's in Lowe's all the time, surrounded by people who know how to use all these tools. He's going to become very familiar with all the different things in the store, and that's going to help him build things out. And he's got a place to park where he's not going to draw any attention. And not only that, he's going to have first access to the clearance items, which is often one of the cheapest ways to get things. Things like scrap wood, things like used tools that can't be put back on the shelf, all that kind of stuff, he's going to have the first whack at. And he's going to be getting paid to be there. So sure, he's going to have to spend all that time working. But places like Lowe's and Home Depot, they often hire seasonally, so they're used to people coming and going. So if you had to build out a van and you needed some income as well as access to tools and such getting a 3 month gig at Lowe's or Home Depot might be a great idea and i think i think Jose is actually fairly ingenious in this and one other solution that has worked for a number of people is to rent a storage unit if you are in suburbia you can rent a garage styled storage unit and potentially build out your van there. Now you have to find out what the terms are of the storage unit, of course, and you can't expect there to be power outlets in there. But it might be a place where you can at least store stuff and, you know, keep all your junk in there in some place safe overnight and then take it out during the day when you're building your van. Definitely something to look into. Now, if this sounds crazy to you, there are Pretty well-known YouTubers who have built out their vans while living in them. Foresty Forest, number six YouTuber in Canada, he built out his latest van, which is a Chevy Express, while he was living in it. He set aside a cot area for him to sleep in, and then the rest of the van was dedicated to construction, and he did it all in Home Depot parking lots, or Canadian Tire for him. So it can be done. So anyway, I hope some of those tips are useful to you. Even if you're not building out your van, maybe you just need to change a cabinet or put something in. Those are some ideas I'm going to try when I do my van, probably next year. And if it fails miserably, I will be the first to let you know. Tech Talk Let's talk about 12-volt outlets. So in your vehicle, you probably have a 12-volt electrical outlet, and this 12 volt outlet may be labeled aux for auxiliary power. It's kind of interesting to look at the history of these things. There are these round holes that are in your dashboard, and we tend to call them cigarette lighter outlets, even though very few vehicles come with actual cigarette lighters anymore. Well, I traced back the history of these things to the 1890s when they were invented. And they first started becoming regular accessories in vehicles around the 1920s, say 1925. But back then, you would pull out the cigarette lighter, which was on a cord, and as you pulled it out, that would trip a switch, and then it would get hot, and then you would light your cigar, and then you would let go, and it would go back and turn off. Hopefully. Sounds kind of dangerous to me. And yes, they were cigar lighters originally. It wasn't until years later when cigarettes became more popular that they became cigarette lighters. That's why they're so big. They're designed to light a cigar. Well, things progressed, and then the 1950s, the style that we're all familiar with was designed and standardized, and it's what's found in vehicles all over the world right now evolution kind of stopped at that point through the 50s 60s and 70s people started creating all these kind of accessories that could steal power from the cigar lighter you know cbs and flashlights and all kinds of things that would plug in there and then when cell phones became popular and mobile phones especially they used that for charging it made sense but it's designed for a cigar lighter it isn't designed for what we're using it for and frankly it sucks I mean, these things are fiddly, you plug it in, it pops out, you have to twist it to make a connection, you can blow a fuse just by wiggling it too much. They're really a terrible solution for the problem of getting 12 volts of power. So here's a suggestion for you that I think makes a lot of sense. Install a different kind of 12-volt outlet in your van. You do not have to use these things. There's a type of connector called an Anderson connector. It's a much better connector. It's two prongs, you plug it in, it snaps in place, it's very solid, and then it unsnaps. There's no fiddling, you know it's going to work. It's much more reliable. So if you're building out the back of your van and you want 12 volt power, consider abandoning the normal cigarette lighter plug thing entirely. I I mean, and you can do this. You can cut them off and replace them with Anderson connectors. You just have to remember to match the polarity, which is positive and which is negative, and to make sure there's a fuse in the circuit somewhere, because most of those cigarette lighter plugs have a fuse in them. If you unscrew the tip, there's a glass bus fuse in there. Anyway, give it a thought. I think in the long run, it will save you a lot of hassles, and I'm thinking about doing it for my next build, too. Tales from the road. So, sometimes people actually listen to me and go to the places I recommend, and it it shocks me every time, and it makes me a little nervous. Jeez, what if I got something wrong? At any rate, I just got got two emails this week from folks who visited places that I have recommended. One was the Ace of Clubs house in Texarkana, which sadly seems to be... Less than it was when I visited it, oh ten 10 years ago, but it's still there and still interesting. And then I got this letter from a gentleman by the name of Art, who lives in the Pittsburgh area of the country, and I'm just going to basically read his letter to you. So this is Art speaking. Hey, just stopped for gas while on my way back to Pittsburgh. Spent the weekend in a little town that I heard about recently on a podcast I enjoy. Well, thank you. There was a very cool state park in this small berg that was awesome to hike around in. Beautiful trees and forest, thickly wooded and old growth. At sunrise this morning, it was even a bit spooky with the way there was a mist creeping all around the tree trunks and huge rhododendron bushes. Chilling! I mention this trip not just because I was recently turned on to the area and the state park, but because I wanted to mention something important that took place while I was visiting. The park had a sign, of course, that informs everyone that you cannot park there overnight. Well, being that I was unfamiliar with the area and yet was also tired from driving and hiking, I was at a loss as to where I could park my van to get some sleep for the night. There was no cell phone service in this backwoods tiny town, so iOverlander and FreeCampsites.net wasn't going to happen. I stopped to get some fuel and water and decided to ask this couple that was parked at the service station in one of those sporty side-by-side UTVs if they might know a place where a fellow could get some shut-eye without being asked to move along by the authorities. The nice young man, Ryan told me to follow them across from the town dollar store with the big yellow sign. They live there across the street and have a huge yard around the house, and I'm welcome to just park there and leave in the morning whenever I'm up and around. I just wanted folks that might be listening to the podcast to know that people are mostly good, and if you are friendly and approach with a genuine and friendly smile, that you never know where it might lead. Thanks for the suggestion, Jeff. It was well worth the drive. Sincerely, Art. Art is talking about Cathedral State Park in Aurora, West Virginia, and the old-growth hemlock forest that is there. And Art, I'm glad you had such a positive experience. I think you approached the situation perfectly. You were in a public space. You weren't threatening in any way. And yes, often locals are thrilled that you're visiting and will be happy to find you a place to stay. Of course, you've got to be careful and, you know, trust your gut and all that stuff. It's always an option. But Art, you bring up two things I need to mention. One is that I need to be careful about when I recommend these places that I mention that these are places to visit, not places to stay. A lot of, most of the time when I'm traveling, I will visit a place and then I will drive several hours before I actually stop for the night. So listeners, please know that, that my places to visit are not necessarily places to stay. Also, there are offline apps that will help you find places even if you don't have an internet connection, and iOverlander is actually one. If you download the app, it will download the basic information for all the places. Now, you won't be able to see pictures, and you may not be able to get the latest updates, but you will have basic information for finding places. But great solution to a problem. I'm glad you had a good time, and uh, hey, thanks for going to someplace I recommend. I'm, I'm very happy to share these places with folks. Product Review Product Review This weekend I did a lot of cooking outside. I was camping with my wife and we brought the butane burner outside and it was nice. And I had brought with me this device that I am going to recommend everybody buy. I mean, there are things I recommend, but really you should have one of these or similar. And it's called a High Rock Lightweight Compact Folding Camp Stove Windscreen. It's a very fancy name for a, a big piece of folding aluminum basically it's a bunch of pieces of aluminum that are hinged together and they're all about the size of a cell phone so imagine you had a bunch of very thin cell phones that were hinged together and basically you make a fence around whatever your cooking device is to keep the wind from blowing on the flame and it works remarkably well it's super flexible you can shape it any way you want it has cutouts at the bottom that make sure there's actually airflow, but not enough air to mess with your heat and it saved us quite a bit of cooking time. It doesn't take much of a breeze to blow the heat off your stove and out from under your pot and just waste it in the air, and this thing prevents that. And what I really like is that it takes up no space. It comes in this little pouch, it folds flat, I mean it's thinner than my wallet when it's folded up. It's a cheap little thing. Now, as I'm recording this, I look and the one I bought is actually not in stock anymore. But they do make other ones, some of them are bigger. Now, I have the Gas-1 butane stove, which is what a lot of people use, and I find that the short one, which is five and a half inches tall, worked perfectly, but if you're using a jet boil or some kind of camping-hiking stove, those tend to be taller, you may want to go with the taller one. So I'm actually going to link in the show notes to the taller one, which is the High Rock Tall Compact Folding Camp Stove Windscreen, which of course would work fine for the butane stove, it's just a bit bigger. Now it's 11 bucks for the tall one. I think it was five bucks for the short one. And I can think of a thousand different uses for this when you're out on the road. Even in the winter, if you're using some sort of heating source in your van that you're a little worried might be too close to something, this would make an interesting heat shield, or even a a blocker if you have something blowing on you in the van you don't like, you could use this to just deflect the wind. Anyway, it's a lovely little bit of kit and I highly recommend you get it. And there's a link in the show notes, or heck, make your own out of tin cans. That would work too. A place to visit. Well, folks, it's going to be an Aurora, but it's, it's a very interesting Aurora, and it's one that's going to take a little bit of work for you. If you guys want to check this place out, it's a little bit of work, but I think it's worth worth it. And I may have recommended this before, and if I did, I don't care, because it's that cool, I want to do it again. This place is Aurora Nevada. Now it has very little there. In fact, if you go to Aurora Nevada right now, there is exactly one wall left standing of what was formerly a town of 10,000 people. It is a ghost town, but all the buildings are gone. Uh people from San Francisco drove all the way to Aurora Nevada and stole the bricks. And use them to build their own buildings. So if you actually want to see the buildings of Aurora, Nevada, you have to go to San Francisco. But the streets are still there. There's all kinds of stuff to find if you poke around. And the history is amazing. Aurora, Nevada is right on the border of California and Nevada. I recommend you get there from Hawthorne, Nevada. If you come from the Hawthorne, Nevada side, it's much easier to get in because there is a new mine in the area, and so the mining roads are open. You will be riding on dirt roads a lot. But I made it just fine in my NV200, and I rolled right into Aurora, Nevada, which is marked on most maps as Aurora Cemetery, and I was able to park right next to that one standing wall. Now, I don't think I could have gone any further than that. If you want to go further than that, I highly recommend really high clearance, four-wheel drive, possibly a UTV, something like that. But for just getting into the town, it was fine. And then you can see the one wall, but what you should do before you go there is look at aerial pictures of the place that were taken in the 1800s and early 1900s, and you can just imagine, looking out over the sagebrush and the little bits of wood here and there, this huge city that was where Mark Twain first got successful with writing. He wrote a book called Roughing It, which took place in Aurora, Nevada, although he called it Esmeralda because that was the name of the mining district there. And at that time, they thought it was in California. It's so close to the border that it was actually the county seat of a county in California and Nevada at the same time. Now, you might say, why should I drive all the way out in the desert just to see one wall? Well, there is more to see than that. If you go up the hill from the wall... There is a cemetery that's still there, and it's quite an elaborate cemetery for there being no buildings around. And you can read all about these folks who lived and died there. There's a whole family of graves there where there are all these children who died days apart from a cholera epidemic. And if you're really good, you can find the grave of a gunslinger. It actually says that on his tombstone. Now, The town didn't like this guy much, so basically they kind of killed him, and then they were like, okay, good riddance, and they buried him outside the main cemetery, up the hill. It's hard to find. In fact, I didn't find it. I've seen pictures of it, but when I was there, I failed to find it. And it's an amazing history written on his gravestone from his wife about how he was murdered in cold blood, but then when you look, you find out that, geez, if anybody should have been murdered in cold blood, maybe it was this guy absolutely quiet peaceful place with an amazing history and I love the fact that it's an Aurora because I can use it to contrast against the other Auroras and say that no matter how prosperous your Aurora is now there's always Aurora Nevada and your town could become that someday as well I'll have links in the show notes on how to find the place and some of the cool stuff that's there but give it a thought if you're in the Hawthorne Nevada area Aurora Nevada is worth a day trip for sure Resource recommendation. We talk a lot about how to find water, and, and some folks who are out in vans love hot springs. If you follow Wonder Hussy on YouTube, she's all about the hot springs. Well, there is a website that will help you find both of those things. It's called findaspring.com, just like it sounds, and it is a nationwide directory. Well, it's actually all of North America of hot springs and cold springs that you can use to fill your water tanks or just have a soak-in. Now, this is a crowdsourced activity, so if you know of a water source that isn't on there, please add it. This is kind of like freecampsites.net, but for water. And for some folks, people just like spring water better than regular water, so it's great for them. For other folks, they just need water and they want a place where they can get it without too much hassle. But it's also just an interesting thing to look at. If you look at Nevada, for example... There's hardly anything in the way of freshwater springs, anywhere in the state, at least on this map. But then you look in the east, and they're everywhere, so I find it kind of just interesting to look at. Anyway, just another resource for you to find things on the road, findaspring.com. Give it a look. Update on the Aurora Project. In 2019, I visited every place named Aurora in the United States and Canada, and in 2021, I plan on doing it again. As of this recording, I have not gotten started yet, but I've been doing a lot of research, figuring out roots and such, and I've come across the problem I had originally. What is an Aurora? I mean, it sounds like a silly question, right? You just go to every place named Aurora. Except that places named Aurora isn't actually a good enough definition. What counts? For example, there are five places named Aurora in Wisconsin. Do I go to all of them? Do I go to just one? How do I decide? Well, I do have a criteria, and it's loose. It's something I allow myself to fudge a bit. But here's my criteria. In order to be an official Aurora that I will visit, you must have a zip code that is unique to Aurora and a Wikipedia page. Those two things. I will add places that I think have enough interest that they deserve to be on the list. Aurora, Nevada is one, for example, as is Aurora, Kentucky. Now when we get to places like Wisconsin, it's a little bit tricky. If I go to Google Maps and search on Aurora, Wisconsin, it shows me a town up near Niagara in the far north reaches of Wisconsin. Sounds like it could be an interesting place to visit, but is it going to be that much different from Aurora, Minnesota, which isn't really all that far away? Maybe. I did not choose Aurora, Wisconsin on my first trip, but maybe I should on my second. But then there is another Aurora in the middle of the state, and in fact, inside that Aurora is another little town called Auroraville. And at some point, I have to draw the line. What I've decided to do is I'm going to look to see if they have a zip code and a Wikipedia page. If they have both of those, they're definitely on the list. Everything else is case by case. I am going to visit an Aurora in Wisconsin during this coming year, but I haven't decided which one. And I may do both and then pick one to report on. And the reason is that once I do the far north one, the one in the middle of the state is more or less on my way back home to Chicago, so I might as well stop by and see. If you live near an Aurora that you think I should visit, please let me know. Chances are I am going to visit it, but there are several that I've taken off the list, such as Alaska and Florida and Alabama and Arkansas and New Mexico. They all have places named Aurora, but I can't find enough information about them to actually make an interesting report on them. You can change my mind if you just tell me, hey, I want you to visit this Aurora and this is why, and I will listen to everything you say. Well, thanks for listening to this episode 69. I absolutely appreciate you being here. As a reminder, we are also on YouTube at Built To Go, a YouTube channel, as well as Facebook at Built To Go, a Facebook group. Music, as always, is by Simon Wag. And until next time, remember the words of Isaac Dennison, The cure for anything is salt water, sweat, tears, or the sea.